Father in heaven, you are worthy and you are holy. You are merciful as we have sung about this morning. We pray, Father, that you would be merciful to us once again right now. Lord, that you would show us mercy as we seek to hear from you. Spirit, would you speak to all of us? Lord, we ask that you would move in power and that you would move a foolish and frail servant out of your way. And that you would speak to all of us from your holy and perfect word. God, thank you for this word that you have preserved and passed down through thousands of years. Would you speak to us from it now? To encourage those of us who need encouragement, for comfort for those of us who need comfort. But Lord, there's also those of us this morning that we need conviction. Father, would you convict us? Lord, would you allow your word, would you work through your word to pierce us sharper than any two-edged sword? God, would you challenge us and cause us to be motivated to live our lives for you as we leave this place? All of this is possible through the power of you, Holy Spirit, moving in the reading, the teaching, and the proclamation of your Holy Word. So would you move now among us? Would you teach us as we do our best to humbly listen as you speak? We pray all this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, I encourage you to take it and turn with me once again to the letter James wrote to the church. The letter that James, the brother of Jesus, wrote to the church. If you're hunting James in your Bible, you start off in the New Testament towards the back end. You'll have the Gospels there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then the Acts of the Apostles. You get into Paul's letters. You have Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. We have the General Electric Power Cooperative. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Then you're going to find all the T's. All the T's are after that, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy. Then you get to Titus. Then you'll get to a very tiny one-page book called Philemon. And then right after that, you'll find Hebrews. And once you've hit Hebrews, you're almost there. James is after Hebrews. If you get to 1 Peter, you went one book too far. Back up just one book for us, all right? So if you don't have your own copy of Scripture to follow along with, I encourage you to take one and borrow it from the back of the pew in front of you. If you don't own your own copy of Scripture, please feel free to take that copy with you as our gift to you. Whatever you might be doing to read the Word of the Lord, whether it be in print edition or digital format, I would ask, if you're physically able, would you please stand out of reverence for the public reading of God's holy word? As we read together, as we look together now, I'll read for us from James, beginning in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, through chapter 2, verse 13. After I read for us, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. If you are grateful for it, I encourage you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. Let's look together now, James chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly 
and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in this place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We return to the book of James this morning, and James does a very intricate weaving of topics as he writes to us. He wrote to the church in dispersion that was in the midst of trial, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of hardship, but this letter is still applicable to us thousands of years later. He starts off encouraging us to count it all joy. This is James, the brother of Jesus. And I I don't know if you caught it there in chapter 2, but he literally says in verse 1 of chapter 2, Faith, hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. We have said this numerous times, but there is no way, unless you have your brother pinned with his arm behind his back and he's retching in pain, there's no way to get your brother to call you the Lord of glory unless you are, in fact, the Lord of glory. James didn't feel that way for the vast majority of their early time together in life. He thought that Jesus was crazy, thought that he had the epitome of a Messiah complex. What changes James' mind about his brother? Well, his brother said, I'm going to die, I'm going to be dead for three days, and then I'm going to rise from the dead. And then when they found the tomb empty, James went, you know what? Maybe he wasn't kidding about that whole Messiah thing. And so James becomes one of the lead people. He becomes an apostle, and he is leading the church as it is beginning there in Jerusalem. And he is willing to call Jesus the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And so he's writing to Christians who are experiencing suffering. He weaves little nuggets in as we go, because you'll notice he says in verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religious religion is worthless. There will be a point, a couple of chapters, several verses from now, where 
James will talk about what it means to tame our tongues. But he gives us the precursor to that so that when he begins talking about taming your tongue, it doesn't come out of nowhere. So when we read the book of James, we have to slow down just a little bit because he's always giving us a hint of what's coming up next. Verses 26 and 27 are inextricably connected to the beginning of chapter 2. It is connected to this discussion about favoritism and partiality. You know, in the world today, we are told that discrimination is a terrible thing. But I hope we understand we discriminate all the time. We're not just talking about discrimination against a certain ethnicity or discrimination against a certain race. We're not talking about discrimination against a certain age. But even in the morning, you discriminate against all the other clothes in your closet when you select what you're going to wear. You say, I choose this one to the effect that I will not choose all the others. You say, I will go to this restaurant, and you are discriminating against all the other restaurants because you're in the mood for chicken that day instead of a burger. The same thing happens to us in our social lives. We are social creatures, and we are drawn into little cliques, into little groups of people that we are most comfortable with. And so we discriminate against others because we're most comfortable with these people who are in the same socioeconomic category that we might be in, who are the same ethnicity that we might be, there is something in common between us that causes us as sinful human beings to discriminate against others. And that's why James writes, if you think you're religious, if you think you're doing well, let me tell you what real religion looks like. We talked about this Last week, but religion that is pure, that is undefiled before God the Father, is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. To visit orphans and widows. These are the people who would probably be outside of your normal comfort zone. These are the people who are afflicted. And when we are not afflicted, we don't like to be reminded about people who are afflicted. We don't want to expend the emotional energy to invest in them. They got a lot of problems. And I just don't know if I got time in my life for somebody that's got a lot of problems, right? So we find ourselves drawn away from those who are already marginalized in society and we pull back from them even further. That's why James has to point this out to us. If we want religion that is pure, that is undefiled, it is doing for those who cannot do in return for you. And you know, that that doesn't just mean giving away money. That doesn't just mean buying somebody a meal. It means being there for somebody. There are emotional needs. There are physical needs. There are spiritual needs. And sometimes we get caught up in the trap, in the lie of thinking that if we just show up for somebody and give them some money to help them get along, then we've done what James 1.27 is talking about, and now the Lord is pleased with us and we can move on with our lives. So then he moves into chapter 2 to let us know on a little more drilled down in your face, personal level, how we tend to discriminate and avoid those who need our love the most. He says, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and also a poor man in a shabby set of clothing comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in the good place, While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? 
This is what happens to us. Maybe it's not fine clothing versus shabby clothing. Maybe it's not a gold ring versus no rings. But there is something about how sinful we are that creates distinctions among us where we want to minister to us and exclude them. And and I don't know all the different categories, even within this room, of the distinctions that we make, but I can definitely tell you in sports we are really good at making an us and a them. Are we not? I mean, even if you are part of us, do you know how often I have been ridiculed because I am probably one of the most negative Alabama fans on the face of the planet. Now, I know that Nick Saban is the coach, and I know that it's been a pretty good run for Nick Saban. I mean, just, you know, a a few wins here and there. But when I was growing up, that was not the case for Alabama. I want you guys to be aware of something. I've never been to an Alabama game where we won, personally. I've never been in attendance when the Alabama Crimson Tide won the game. Remember when Nick Saban first arrived at the University of Alabama and they played Louisiana Monroe? And they lost. Yeah, I was at that game. That was the last game anybody in my social group was ever willing to buy a ticket for me for. They said, Nathan, we love you. Stay home. Watch the game. Cheer from home. So when Alabama played Texas, I was watching eagerly. I was excited. But, you know, I was determined, ah, they're not going to pull it out. It's over. The game, that's it. Nobody likes watching the Alabama game with me because even though we're us together, we're Alabama fan and Alabama fan, they don't want to be around that kind of negativity, so they create a distinction. Nathan, you're not really an Alabama fan because, see, Jessica's an Auburn fan, and that's your problem. See, you're too sympathetic towards Auburn, so you don't care as much about Alabama. I say all of that to say we will drill down to the nth degree to create a distinction between us and and them. It's not just the Alabama fans versus the Auburn fans. It's the true Alabama fans versus the Auburn fans and the bad Alabama fans and everybody else. We will do anything to make a distinction among ourselves and others. And once that distinction is there, we think that we're doing someone a favor when we go outside of that group. You know, Scripture teaches us time and time again that the distinction of us and them is those who already know and have the gospel versus those who still need the gospel. That's the only distinction. In Colossians, Paul will say there is no Jew, there is no Greek, there is no barbarian, no Scythian, no slave, no free. There's no men, there's no women. All the other distinctions fade away under the banner of Jesus Christ. That should be what anchors us Together, the only us and them that exists in this world for Christians is those who may already know and have the gospel against those who need the gospel. And the only way that we're against those who need the gospel is that we're trying to get them to be part of us. But that's not how we live. How we live is we're us and they're them. And we don't want the them to be part of us. Take, for instance, that we have 52 Southern Baptist churches in Covington County. We will find a way to distinguish ourselves between one another. We will, even among those who believe in the gospel, we find a way to make distinctions and separate ourselves one from another. I'm curious. We have teachers that will go to their kids' baseball, softball, sport event game. Insert your sport. You have wonderful teachers who will go to their kids' games, 
no matter where they're playing, whether it's in Little League or whether it's in high school, they'll go to the kids' game because their classroom connection is deeper than their other connections. So they want their students to know that they support them, that they love them by showing up at that game. I just want to ask, how many of us who are Andalusia, how many of us who are Strawn, how many of us are willing to show our support one towards the other by just showing up at the opposite school's event because somebody that you go to church with is on that team? How many of us will show up at an Andalusia game even though we are entrenched and strong, right? But we show up because John, who goes to Sunday school with me, who's my brother in Christ, is playing for Andalusia. And I want John to know that his connection to me as a part of the body of Christ is more important than what school we go to or what team we cheer for. How many folks from Andalusia would go to a strong game just because you're connected to the people who were on the team, not necessarily the team? We find all sorts of wonderful and creative ways to create distinctions and show partiality. It may be that somebody comes in looking nice and they get the warmest welcome. It may be that somebody comes in looking shabby and they don't get the warmest welcome. But it may also be just that you're not part of us. You're them. Whether it's strong Andalusia, whether it's black and white, whether it's white and Hispanic, whether it's rich and poor. For some reason, we create these distinctions when there's no room for them in the gospel. All through chapter 2, James is hearkening back to Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, where there is no room for any kind of distinction in the gospel. He harkens back to Leviticus chapter 19. He goes Old Testament on us. Did you not catch in verse 8? If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then if, if we need some clarification, Jesus talks about the Good Samaritan. And the Samaritans were the most hated people in Jerusalem. Samaria was the evil of all evils. We're in Amos in our Sunday school material, right? Amos is from Judah, goes to Israel. The capital of Israel is Samaria. These are the leftover people who were in Israel to the north that were absolutely demolished and scattered. And now they're half-breeds at best. They worship God in the wrong way, in the wrong place, at the wrong time. They're them and we're us and the gospel is clearly not for them. But Jesus goes to the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus tells parables about the good Samaritan. The Samaritan who was a better neighbor than the priest or the Levite. The Samaritan who stopped someone who'd been beaten and mugged. And the Samaritan is the hero of the story. But in every other story that those people had ever heard, the Samaritans were the bad guys. And it was a Jewish culture to go miles out of the way, not even to pass through Samaria. And yet, don't we do the same thing? We are really good at loving our neighbor as long as you count the people we're most comfortable with as our neighbors. Like our actual physical neighbors may make us cringe and scared and we don't get along with them well. So we have very small talk kind of conversations and we don't really know. I mean, this is the world that we live in. When a neighbor shows up and knocks at your door, it's not a pleasant, wonderful thing. 
right? Yesterday, there was somebody that had lost their dog, and they had an air tag, GPS tracker, on their dog, and the last signal they got was from our neighborhood. They showed up at our door, and Micah answers the door, and then he comes to tell me, hey, there's a lady here who says she's lost her dog. I said, really? What's, what, what, tell me about that dog. Tell me about this lady. Why is she over here? Who's she, who is she? Where is she from? Why is she in our neighborhood? You say she's not from our neighborhood? What's her car look like? I don't know that I've seen that car around here before. I don't, I don't know that this story adds up. Well, you know, you're listening to a story from a nine-year-old, so maybe give a little bit more grace, all right? The lady comes back through, and one of us is able to get to the door, and she genuinely lost her dog and was knocking on doors because she was trying to find her dog. Like, what's happened to us, Right? We are suspicious of anyone and everyone because we feel like we have to be in order to protect ourselves instead of opening our hearts for the sake of the gospel. How often do you invite people to your homes that maybe don't fit your us category? How often do you meet people for a meal out in public that don't fit your us category? You know, one of the best things about Bethany Baptist Church, we are often described as a very warm and welcoming church. I believe that to be true. I think it is incredible. I think our ushers do a phenomenal job of making people feel welcome when they come into this space. But I wonder how good are we doing at loving those people outside of this space? Somebody new or different shows up on a Sunday morning and we can throw in a smile how are you? I'm, I'm so-and-so. It's so great to meet you. What's your name? Oh, it's so good that you're here. Thanks for being here, so-and-so. You're welcome to come and sit with me and my family. We, we just are so glad that you're here. All right, well, you have a great week now. I'll probably never talk to you again, but if you show back up, I'll introduce myself again because I don't really remember who you are, and I don't want to make an actual connection with you because that would involve effort and mean that I'd have to get uncomfortable. Guilty as charged. How many of us See it as an opportunity to reach out to someone and make them a part of our us. And not only welcome them, which is good and a wonderful thing to do. And we need to continue doing that. But we do show partiality because we're so glad that you're here. But now I'm going to go eat lunch with my family. Hmm. That family, right? We are so good at making an us and a them. We create our own us physically biologically a husband and a wife have children and then that's their us and then as our children grow our circle gets smaller and smaller and smaller until it's just us and our kids and then when our kids launch out maybe they take jobs and move across the state our us is still our kids and every weekend we're gone because we've got to go visit them and then they have grandkids that's our us We've got to go every weekend to go visit the grandchildren because that's our people. And we discriminate against everyone else to lock in on only our family. And we've been showing favoritism and partiality because biologically we created this us. There is still no distinction in the gospel. You know how many weekends we've gone back up to Birmingham for family. And we'll deny doing something with or for the church and go home to be with family. Because family is a strong draw. I'm not saying that family is a bad thing, but we are really good as a society at taking good things and making them God things. Taking family that we love, that we cherish, and making it what we worship. 
And then we have no time to reach anyone new because all of our energy and efforts, not some, not the majority, all of our energy and effort is directed at our family. And so maybe we didn't snub the person in shabby clothes. Maybe we didn't snub the person in the gold ring, but we snubbed everybody that wasn't our immediate family because our family comes first. And sometimes we invite strangers into our own family meal because it's worth reaching out to them and spreading our us out. It might be messy. They might not do things right. They might, they might not know when to pray, when to eat, how to eat. They might not follow the same customs and traditions that we've set up in our family. But if we're going to love our neighbor, if we're going to be a good neighbor, if we're going to exemplify the gospel, it means we don't just stop at a warm welcome and a fond hello. It means that we invite these people to be part of our lives. The widows and the orphans. The people who don't smell good. The people who don't dress nice. It means we show no partiality. It means we show no favoritism. It means we show mercy to people. And you might be thinking, I just don't get that this is that big of a deal. Well, that's what we add in for verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. Verse 10 is a strong verse. It's pretty easy for me to stand up here and say, I don't get drunk. I don't smoke weed. I don't do drugs. I don't do any of the big sins, right? Never killed anybody. Never committed adultery. A lot of, lot of sins I can say. I've never done the big sins. But I can't say that I've never failed in one point. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous. No, not one and when we think well you know i I haven't done anything really bad but we show favoritism all day every day any day we're partial we exclude people we discriminate we think "Ah, that's not that big of a deal yeah but it is the analogy that i've always used when i've run into this passage has usually been with students in student ministry and it's a it's a bit vivid but just imagine and you've probably heard this before that you're making cookies and as you're making cookies there's a, a little bit of, um, you know, a little bit of a prize that your dog left behind that your child brings inside and thinks this is going to be a great addition to the cookie. So as you're mixing up the batter and you're making everything, your kid walks into the kitchen, drops just a sprinkle of, of, of dog feces down into the, into the mix and stirs it up some more. And then as they're coming out of the oven, it's like 98% cookie dough, right? It's only like 2% dog poop. This so minuscule, it's not a lot of dog poop. As they're coming out of the oven and they're cooling off, your kid proudly tells you, I helped with the cookies, Mommy. I helped with the cookies, Daddy. I put some of the dirt from outside in the cookies. Is dirt outside? Baby, we don't have any dirt. Our, our, our yard is just nothing but grass. Look at this brown spot sitting on top of the grass. Was it in the backyard where the, where the dog is? Uh-huh, uh-huh. It was right over by the doghouse. It, it was just it was a big old plop of dirt, and I just helped add it because it looked like it would be great. Are you going to eat the cookies? If you are going to eat those cookies, 
we need to have a talk after the service, okay? Like, there's something wrong. Like, it is dog poop in your cookies. Don't eat them. I don't care. There's just a little bit. You throw those cookies out. You make a fresh batch on a new pan even. Like, we're not even going to put the cookie dough of the fresh cookies on the same pan where the dog poop was. That's not going to happen, okay? It's the same with the law. We forget that God's holiness is so awesome and so great and so far above us. If there ever was an us and a them, it's God Almighty who is holy. He is the us and we are the them because we don't measure up in any way, shape or form. And you might be thinking, but I haven't done a whole lot of stuff. Right, but if it's not a whole lot of dog crap that's in your cookie, it still makes all the difference in the world. So it doesn't matter if you've never committed murder, if you've looked on a woman with lust, if you've looked on a man with lust, that's enough dog poop to keep you out of heaven. And we need God's grace and His mercy. And there is no distinction between sinners. We all equally need God's grace. And it doesn't matter what country you're from. It doesn't matter what school you go to. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter those things in the gospel. There should be no distinction. And not just for warm welcomes and haze and handshakes, but I'm inviting you to be a part of my life and we're going to walk through life together. And when you struggle, I'm going to struggle with you. That's why Jesus says we weep with those who weep. We mourn with those who mourn. We rejoice with those who rejoice. It's part of the gospel. And if you think it's not important, it is because that's what he did for us. He says that mercy triumphs over judgment in verse 13. Do we know why mercy triumphs over justice? Over judgment. Because we deserve judgment and God showed us mercy. We were the ones who were far away. We were all the smelly kid in class. We were all the people in the shabby clothes. We were all the people covered in dog mess. We were the people that should have been thrown out. We were the people that should have been trampled on and never given a shot. And Jesus didn't just give us a handshake. He said, I'm going to bring you in and I'm going to die for you so that when God the Father looks down, he doesn't see what a mess you are. He sees how perfect I am because I am Jesus and I'm taking your place. Volunteered to do it. And so when we show partiality, when we show favoritism, when we decide to discriminate within the gospel, we're saying that, Jesus, you could come to us and make it available for whosoever will, but I'm not willing to do the same for someone else. We are the ambassadors of the gospel. We are the ones carrying the message, and that's not just in the words we say. It's in the way that we live. And that means... Our lives might be messy, and we might invite people into our lives that don't fit in our normal clique. They don't go to the same school. They don't make the same amount of money. They look really different. They smell really different. They talk really different. Whatever it is, the gospel says that even though we were far away, Jesus came to us. And if we want to live that out, then we show mercy to people who come into this building, and we would perceive them as less than. And we love them like we love our own kids. We love them the way Jesus loved us. We treat them as a neighbor. Show them grace. Give them mercy. Because mercy triumphs over judgment. And it means we invite them into our homes. And we invite them for meals. And we take them for meals. And we say, hey, my kid's got a soccer game at such and such a time and place. I'd love for you to be there and come be a part. But you know when they get there, they're going to act a fool. You know they're going to embarrass you. But their salvation and their growth in Christ and us loving them the way Jesus loved us is more important to us than just 
hey, it's nice to see you at church. All right, I'll see you again next Sunday. Don't have anything to do with me during the week. You see somebody, that head nod. I, no, 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 no need to walk over here. I gave you the head nod. Look, I'm still nodding the head. Please stay over there. Jesus didn't give us no head nod. He didn't give us a handshake. He reconciled us. He embraced us in a warm, loving hug when we should have been killed. He should have just started over. And you and I, we have the audacity to look at people made in His image and think, there is no way I'm going to hug them. What if they, what if they got some sort of disease? What, what, no chance. God help us. He never thought that about you and me. He never thought Nathan's too gross, even though I am. Nathan's too far gone, even though I was. Nathan's too socially awkward. Nathan's such a knucklehead. He didn't care. He knew it would be messy to love me. He loved me anyway. He knew it would be messy to love you. But he didn't say that you were too tall or too fat or too skinny or too socially awkward or too introverted or you made too much money or you didn't make enough money. He just came to die for you. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, he came for you. So it's our call to do the same for others. Not in some superficial fake love. In real, genuine love. Sacrificial love. It's probably going to be hard. Sometimes it's dangerous. But it's what we're called to do. Because in reality, there are no less than. We're all less than. God, even as I preach this, I I know I've failed. Lord, I I know that there have been so many times in my life where I've counted myself as better than someone else and I've discriminated against them. I have shown favoritism and partiality subconsciously and consciously. Lord, I know we are all guilty of it. Lord Jesus, thank you for the example you show that even though you are so much better than all of us, even though you are so much higher than all of us, even though we are so undeserving, you came anyway. Not just to give us a handshake, but to take our place, to pull us down off of that cross and step onto it yourself. To make your love and your mercy available to whosoever will, regardless of any distinction in life. Help us, Lord, to live as though there are no distinctions in the gospel. Because there aren't. Help us to remember that we are a family of faith. We are a body because we are united in you by your blood. Lord Jesus, I pray this morning that if there is anyone who has never received your mercy, who's never fully understood what you've done for us on the cross, how you step down out of heaven into our mess, into our muck, and you took the punishment that we all deserve. But while we were yet sinners, you died for us, and that you were risen, you were raised up from the dead three days later, and that because you live, anyone who places their faith in you 
can have life eternal. Father, if there's anyone here this morning that's never trusted in that message, would you move on their heart? And Lord, for those of us who have trusted on that message, but in the way we live, in the things we do, we've forgotten. Would you please convict us? Draw us to repentance. We ask all this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.